Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 556, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be reading uh, today verses 15 through 29, but I'm going to break that into a few sections. So we're just going to start with verses 15 through 20. Beloved children, this is your Father's word to you, to teach to correct, to exhort, to encourage in righteousness. Please give your attention to the reading of it. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die? Before your time, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Sends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask the Lord to meet us in it. And speak to us through it. Let us pray. Most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not naturally people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds. Give ears to us that we might hear this most holy truth, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I wonder if maybe you prepared for worship today by reading this passage in advance and maybe probably had a few questions. Maybe you read it once, half awake, and thought, wait, what did he say? Then you read it again, and sure enough, he said, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. And you thought, too righteous? Is there such a thing? And then, you kept reading, and it just got worse. You came to the end of the passage and you read, One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And you thought, what is that all about? Was this just proof that the Bible is full of misogyny? Was Solomon a sexist? Or is there something more to it? We have to remember that Ecclesiastes has a story. There's something going on here. I've told you that that we're, we're taking a, a journey with Solomon. He isn't just going to tell us his conclusions. He's going to walk us down the roads he has walked that we might come to the same conclusions he has come to. He's wrestling with the shortness of life and how to make sense out of it, how to find meaning. 
where to discover the secret of contentment. That word translated vanity, as, as Brian reminded us in the reading of the law, really means breath. Life is short, but a breath. Verse 15 is really saying something like, In my short life, I have seen everything. And as he walks down this road, he's honest. Brutally honest. He doesn't sugarcoat the mistakes he has made. He shares them in all their gory details with the singular hope of helping us to avoid making the same mistakes he has made. And that's what's going on in our passage today. He's confessing three mistakes that he has made, three mistakes that are common to all of us. And as with most of the devil's schemes, they start with something that is good and worthy of pursuit, but they take that good thing and they pervert it. Rather than seeing them for what they are, a a means of pursuing God, they become their own ends. They become idols. And idols aren't just false gods. The point behind idolatry is seeking a God you can control and manipulate. The true God, let's just be honest for a minute, scares us because he can't be coerced. He can't be controlled. And so we are constantly tempted to either seek after false gods or false views of the true God that allow for the idea that we can somehow control him. And today we want to look at these three idols that Solomon has fallen victim to, that he has elevated above God in his quest for control. Women, wisdom, and works. We want to see that good works are important, but they are not a means to make God our debtor so that we can force him to give us something in return. We'll see that knowledge is good, but there are things we should not know. And finally, we'll see that relationships can be good, but when elevated above God, become absolutely destructive. My main point as we look at this passage is this. When we elevate God's gifts above God, we do not serve Him, we destroy ourselves. When we elevate God's gifts above God, we don't serve God, we destroy ourselves. That's what we're going to see today as Solomon honestly confesses three huge mistakes he made. So what's he getting at when he says, do not be too righteous? I think context is super important here. He's dealing with the temptation to think that if you are righteous, you will live forever. The Bible does teach that that's how simple justice works. Life is the reward for obedience or or righteousness. Death is the punishment for sin, for disobedience. 
And that's how God set things up in creation. Had Adam obeyed, he would have lived forever. There's some truth in this idea. But here's the problem. To do that, you would have to live forever. I mean, sorry, you would have to be absolutely perfect in order to live forever. That's God's standard. Absolute perfection. If you want to earn a reward from Him for your good works, you don't need to be pretty good or better than everyone else. You need to be absolutely perfect. And no one is. That's what verse 20 says. And so God doesn't simply deal with us based upon our righteousness. Solomon looks around. He sees that a relatively righteous person may die young and a relatively wicked person might live to be a hundred. That's reality in a fallen world. But what's really being addressed is this temptation to think that if you are a good person, you follow God's commands, that He has to bless you. And we all know what this looks like. We think that if we're good workers, honest and hardworking, that we'll get promoted, we won't get laid off, that we'll be able to retire. We think that if we honor God, our marriages will be strong and we won't have to suffer the struggles that others go through. We think that if we're just good parents, we pray with our children, read the Bible to them, that, that they will grow to love and honor the Lord. If we, if we pursue God and honor Him, we're going to be spared from major trials, cancer, tragedy, pain, and grief. And then when the trials come, we say, but I did what I was supposed to do. Why is this happening to me? We believe that we had this agreement with God. That if we obeyed, He would reward us. Really, we believe that He owed it to us. That's not Christianity. That's legalism. It's it's moralism. And it's subtle. It sneaks in. It, It starts with a kernel of truth. But it's so destructive. Because it leads to prideful self-reliance and non-humble dependence upon God's grace. When things go well, it leads to a critical and judgmental spirit towards others. And when it goes badly, we despair because we think God has given up on us. And none of us, not one person in this room, is immune to its temptation. Not even Solomon was safe. He thought that if he was just better than everyone else, he would save himself from heartache. And he failed. So he tenderly admits his failure. He admonishes us that that life is, is not about what you touch or don't touch. It's about fearing God. He's not saying that obedience isn't important. Verses 17 and 19 make that clear. What he's saying is that if you turn your obedience into an idol, an attempt to control God and make him your debtor, make him your slave, 
you will fail miserably because you're not pursuing him, but your own prideful goals. Your obedience must be a sacrifice laid at God's altar to do it as he wishes. It can't come with strings attached. You never get to say, God, I will obey you if you promise to give me something in return. Because in order to do that, you would have to be absolutely perfect, which no one is. The second temptation is similar. It's the temptation to think that if you just know everything, you're not going to be surprised. You can plan, you can prepare, and you can avoid all problems. Let's read verses 21 through 25. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been, that has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Knowledge is good. God is a God of truth. He he has told us to love Him with our minds, to pursue truth. The problem is when we think that we can know everything and through that knowledge gain control. I know this temptation. I know it far too well. It's not pretty. It's tragic. When we use God's beautiful truth for our own ends, it's ugly. It's picking up on what Solomon said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He, he mistook wisdom for a way to, to outsmart God rather than as a tool to serve God. He wanted to know everything. But God says that there are things that are not ours to know, that they are God's alone. Again, wisdom and knowledge aren't bad, but there is a line that is not to be crossed. The pursuit of of absolute knowledge, omniscience, is a desire to be God. And so our temptation is to, to try and cross that line that God has drawn to claim that these truths, this knowledge is not God's alone, it is ours as well. That's not a love of truth, that's idolatry of knowledge. It's nothing to be admired. It's a clashing symbol. It's a clanging gong. True worship recognizes that knowledge without love is worthless. It recognizes that if knowledge doesn't lead you to a greater love of God, it's not truly benefiting you. 
Knowledge isn't an end to itself. It's, it's meant to lead you to the God of truth. And trying to insulate yourself from ordinary life through knowledge is idolatry. It's an attempt to control God. And it never works. Solomon confesses he pursued absolute knowledge, but it was far from him. Absolute knowledge is far greater than he could ever imagine, and none can obtain it. But more than this, he confesses that there are things you just don't want to know. And that's what he's talking about in verses 21 and 22. Imagine if you knew everything others thought about you. Do you really want to hear what they call you when they're angry and frustrated? Think of the things you've said when your emotions flare. The very things you wish you could unsay. Now imagine you hear all those things from your friends and those who love you in the heat of the moment. How much worse would it be if you could hear that? How much would you wish you could unhear but never be able to do it? And so he says in verse 25, it leads to madness. He's echoing what he confessed in chapter 1. With, with much knowledge comes great sorrow. There are some things that is better not to know. You're not strong enough to know everything. Only God is. You think that absolute knowledge will empower you, but the reality it will, is it will drive you mad because you're not God. What's the third temptation? The third idol. If good works and knowledge aren't the solution... The third temptation is to turn to relationships. This is the temptation of romanticism to seek comfort and meaning through people. Its mottos are things like, love is the answer, or make love, not war. Let's read verses 26 through the end of our passage, verse 29. And I find something more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought after repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Romanticism takes human relationships and and absolutizes them. Rather than being a gift from God meant to help draw us nearer to Him, they become substitutes, ways that we avoid looking for contentment and fulfillment in God. And really what romanticism wants is, is relationships without accountability, without submission, without the need for humility. But what is a relationship without humility? It's just a tool 
to gain something you want. That relationship is just a means to an end. And that's not love. Again, it's, it's idolatry. This is how we pervert relationships. We, we take a beautiful gift and try to use it for our own glory. People seek out relationships with the hyper-beautiful, not because of love, but because of ego. Relationships are then stripped of all honesty and vulnerability in exchange for the illusion of being wanted. That's the allure of pornography. It's, it's not sexual. It's the illusion of being desirable. It's ego. It's the quest for power. And that's really how seduction takes place. The seducer flatters pride and ego. The seducer convinces her prey that he is desirable and he will be empowered through a forbidden relationship. But her desire is to serve not her prey, but herself. It's her desire is to devour him. And so Solomon says, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. She promises freedom. She promises power. But it's a trap. Because her goal is to enslave. And Solomon knows what he is talking about. His entire legacy with women is summed up in one verse in 1 Kings. He had... I'm going to say it slowly because you're going to think I'm I'm misstating this. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. He had 1,000 women. And they were chosen. Not because they were godly and would push him more towards the Lord. His marriages were not reflections of God's love for his people. And so there was not one woman in that thousand who pushed him towards the Lord. They all pulled him away. When he says he cannot find a woman in a thousand, he's not making a referendum on women in general. It's a confession of his own idolatrous pursuits. He had a thousand women, and not one of them was a godly voice in his life. Marriage should have been a good thing, a gift from God, a reflection of God's love. But he turned it into an opportunity for self, and it was his downfall. And let's be honest. Romantic relationships are easily a bigger temptation than moralism or intellectualism. More people 
are led astray from the Lord through romantic entanglements than anything else. God has warned us time and time and time again to be on our guard. And how do we respond? But I love him. Follow your heart. Or my personal favorite, how can loving someone be wrong? Romanticism is the idolatry of relationships. And its goal is is not to draw you closer to God, but to pursue your own desire to feel adored. God has never told you to follow your heart. He has always told you to follow Him. The wisest king in Israel's history was brought down by following his heart. Solomon's honesty is is refreshing. He confesses that he could not be righteous enough to gain life. He confesses that in his pursuit of knowledge, he was unable to exhaust it. And many of the things he did learn, he wishes he could unlearn. And in playing the role of the great romancer, he was not empowered, but he was enslaved, and his heart was led astray. We can't read his confessions and not be convicted. We've all thought more highly of our own righteousness than we ought and thought that God somehow owed us something in return. We've all tried to gain the secret knowledge so that we could escape the vulnerability to pains and trials in life. And we've all sought relationships that feed our pride rather than help us love Jesus. So what hope is there for us idolaters? Again, idols are an attempt to replace God with something we can control. They elevate God's gifts above the giver. They attempt to gain life and meaning by going down roads that can lead only to death. They deal in lies, not truth. So what is the truth? What is the right way? And where is life to be found? And to ask is to answer, isn't it? Because Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The reason he could say this is because he was like no other. He was righteous and he never sinned. He was tempted as we are, but did not fall. He was perfectly righteous. He was able to say to his father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished everything, the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me. Eternal life was his reward for a perfect life to live, and now he can give it to whom he wants. Beyond this, he knows all things. He is truth itself. He confronts falsehood. And this is why the world hated him, because he testified that its deeds were evil. And it's impossible for him to lie. And this is why his words of comfort are so wonderful, because he can't lie. 
He cannot fail to keep his promises. He said this, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's love. True love. Not the illusion of love. Not self-serving pride. Not the manipulation and entrapment of seduction. But true, selfless love. There is no other relationship that can substitute for the love of Jesus. None other can save you. Other relationships are good if they push you towards Jesus and they are bad if they draw you away. Idols cannot save you. Only Jesus can. And it's an understanding this that you can be freed from the dangers of, of moralism or legalism, of intellectualism and romanticism. When you stop, stop trying to be your own savior, it's then that you actually find hope. Because the Bible calls you to be like Jesus, not to be Jesus. If you make your obedience your idol, the end is death. If you make knowledge your idol, you'll go mad. And if you think relationships can set you free, you will be enslaved. But if you seek knowledge as a gift to lead you to God, if you see relationships as a gift to help you understand and reflect His love, if you see obedience not as a tool to manipulate God, but as as an expression of gratitude for his love and his mercy, then you'll know a freedom and a peace and a joy that you could never imagine. You'll be free to pursue knowledge without demanding to know the hidden things. You'll delight in obeying without expecting something in return. And you'll give yourself in love to others because your needs have already been satisfied in Jesus. That's freedom. Our problem is that we make everything about ourselves. We're consumed with self. We take ourselves far too seriously. And all we end up doing is getting in our own way And then we struggle to serve others. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now I know it would have been nice if he had said, take up your throne and be awesome. (laughs) But that's not what he said. Because it's not about you. He didn't call you to be the Savior. He calls you to follow the Savior. And that means denying yourself, taking up your cross. It means serving God, and it means serving others. That's true love. He's given us a picture this morning of what that looks like. The Lord's Supper is a visible reminder of the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Jesus dying on the cross for his people. And it's a picture of how we are to love one another. As he has loved us, honestly, sacrificially, 
as you take the bread to your mouth and as you, you take the wine to your lips, this is what you confess. You are a sinner and God owes you nothing. That there are things that He has not revealed to you and that you can trust Him. And most importantly, you confess that you live because He loves you. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please join me in prayer. Our God and our King, our loving Father, our gracious Savior, You are everything we long to be. You are perfectly righteous, You are infinitely wise, and You are loving beyond measure. You made man upright. You gave him a mind to know you, a heart to love you, and strength to follow you. But we have sought after many schemes, and we have used your gifts to rebel, to serve our pride. Forgive us, and make us more like Jesus. May we use our minds and our hearts and our strength to serve you, and in serving you, may we know true peace, we pray. Amen.